You know, when I realized that that was what I was going to be doing, I was so horrified and petrified. It was not a welcome, like, oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to write about my marriage. Yay! It was absolutely petrifying because I was writing about a relationship that I intended to stay in, one that I had no interest in betraying, but one that I wanted to find a way to write about truthfully. How do you write about a relationship truthfully without betraying it, without betraying the person you know, with whom you're in the relationship with. This week's guest, Danny Shapiro, is a memoirist and novelist who's been on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday and pretty much every other publication media outlet you can find. We actually met a number of years back, hanging out at a small gathering in New York City. And I invited Danny on when her last book came out to talk about the writing life. She's got a new book out, a memoir called Hourglass, which takes a pretty deep dive look at her life over the last 18 years or so, really focusing on her marriage. And um, it's incredibly raw, incredibly truthful, honest, revealing. And I wanted to dive into that journey with her, both the things that she shared and also what it was like for her as a writer, as somebody who's uh, married and a mom, to be that revealing in the work that she was doing in the world. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. 
LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I have sort of this interesting context with this book too. And so I finished reading it yesterday morning, went from there to see Hamilton with my daughter. And I was like, there are some really interesting tie-ins and so many different levels. And there was a moment in Hamilton where towards the end, after, you know, he had wronged his wife in a major way and also lost his son through some, and she walks behind him and grabs his hand. And I'm just like, oh. That was such a stunning, stunning moment in a stunning, stunning production. But yeah, the the way that Hamilton plays with time even that scene in the middle of Hamilton where the wedding is both happening, um, Eliza and Hamilton's wedding is both happening, and it's being observed as if it's from a distance. Yeah. I find when theater does that, it's so incredibly moving to some see it as a production. Because as a writer, it's what I try to do uh, with the only tool that I have, which is language. And then when I see something like that, like I don't know whether you saw Alison Bechtel's... Um, Fun Home. No, I didn't see uh, that. Fantastic musical where three ages of Alison Bechtel are all on stage at the same time. A little girl Alison, a teenager Alison, and the Alison of today. Mm. And at a certain point, they all actually sing in chorus together. And I can't even talk about it without getting choked up. To see all of yourselves singing together at once is it's kind of what we all try to do with our lives, right? Yeah. Like, no, I mean, completely. And just the, the I mean, moving from sort of you know, moving through your narrative and then seeing sort of like this visual narrative of time and relationships and forgiveness and questioning of everything. And then I wrapped up last night on the couch with my daughter watching um, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which, you know, is all about uh, this, I guess, sort of legendary war journalist. And it was, it was really interesting how the day kind of kept circling back to your, to this memoir in sort of different ways, shapes, or forms. Um, but you brought up this idea of trying to move people back and forth through time, which you do beautifully. It's so hard. Like, how do you even think of accomplishing that? Because as a writer, I've thought about this and struggled with it mightily, and, and I think never come close to figuring it out. Mm. You know, when you've got visual, it's one thing, but when literally you've got to create every scene mm. and move people through, like, from one place to another, um, how do you, you know, even think I, about that? I remember as um, early on in my teaching life saying to my students, literature is, um, it's really, it's one of the only art forms that can delve into the way that time exists, the way that time exists on multiple levels. Um, and because it can, it should, you know, that the writer should at least attempt it. Right? Like, I actually think we were talking about theater. Theater is the only other art form that can do it. I don't think film does it well. If you look at a flashback in film, whenever someone has a flashback or a memory in film, they're in it. <laughs> like, think about it. Are you ever in your own memory? It's like, oh, there I am. I'm seeing myself in this moment. I think probably 
that doesn't happen to most of us. And it's, so it's like the language of film, that's what happens in film, but it always strikes me as a device, like really not real. And so I think from really early on, I w was always trying to tell stories in multiple layers of time. So like the past and the present moving back and forth in, in a novel, say. I tended to do that a lot in my fiction. So it felt to me, you know, in, in Hourglass, I really wanted, wanted to kind of upend time in a way. Like I, 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 I'm sure we'll talk about this a lot more, but I, I wanted to write about marriage and I wanted to write about, therefore, my marriage and what it is to be, to mo move alongside another person, you know, over time to form yourself toward them and against them and away from them and to grow at different rates and it strikes me as something immeasurably beautiful and also deeply complex that I really wanted to think about but I was also really thinking about my younger self I was thinking about my 17 year old you know 17 year old Danny like was this grown woman visible in her uh I mean, I even went back and saw the first therapist that I had ever gone to in my life, who I saw when I was 17 years old. I looked him up. He was still <laughs> practicing, and I went back to see him. Basically, not to go see him in treatment, but to see him to say, can you believe it? Like, did, <laughs> did you, like, that really, really messed up kid, like, did you really, you know, can, could you have imagined who she was going to grow up to become. He really surprised me by saying, yes, absolutely, because it was very moving, actually. But, but I had that, that experience of just, I want to know, like, who I was. And if, if I was alive in her, is she still alive in me? Like, are ourselves always alive in some way another, or another as long as we live? You know, our... our you know, there's a lot of, you know, in the self-help world, there's the inner child. I, yeah. I don't know, maybe the inner child has even fallen out of favor. I don't know. But, you know, just that sense of almost those Russian dolls, those nesting dolls, and the yeah. way that they open up and there are smaller and smaller and smaller dolls inside. And so, yeah, so I wanted to try to find a way in the book to create that feeling for the reader of, on the one hand, this is not moving chronologically or linearly through time at all but I never wanted the reader to feel lost or wait a minute where am I I didn't want it I mean that would have defeated the purpose to feel unmoored but so I, so that was the one of the creative challenges of it yeah no and and executed beautifully because I felt like I I was moving around a lot, but not untethered. Mm, that's a great word. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted I wanted there to be a sense of tethering, like tethering to the turning earth of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. When I read a book like this, there are certain writers and certain books that I read. And uh, on the one hand, there's just the human being reading. I'm like, oh, this is, this is just really interesting reflections and... And I always feel like the you know the purpose of a of a memoir is as much to help you discover about yourself as it is you know the revelation in the writers. And then I always have the writer's hat on when I'm looking at it. I'm like, I want to be able to do that, <laughs> <laughs> just from the craft side of things. So it's a really interesting exercise. I've been reading a lot more. I, I've spent a lot of my life reading sort of prescriptive books, 
and spending a lot more time these days reading biographies and memoirs um, and fascinated by a whole side that I feel like utterly incompetent at um, and, and, and also deeply aspire to a completely different level of craft when I read that. And I realize, I think memoirs make me realize what's possible as a mm-hmm. writer mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and that it's, the information is, you know, is a thin slice of the world of writing, but it's the creation of worlds and and experiences and illumination and all this other stuff. Yeah, no, it's 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 it never feels to me that I'm imparting information yeah. ever. It feels, or that I'm um, receiving information when I'm reading, you know, really really good memoir. I feel like what what the writer is attempting to do is to transcend the life in order to be able to, you know, almost send dispatches from it, to be able to see it as a story, as a, um, or it's, or something even actually, I didn't think of this as a story at all in Hourglass. In fact, I, I write about that in Hourglass. Yeah. It's like, it's, um, I almost felt like I was breaking up with story in some way by, by trying to write it in the way that I did. Um, but it's, I mean, Emerson has that beautiful line about um, great writing that, touches the universe, touches the thread that runs through the universe and all things. And to me, when I read from the time that I was a little girl, I I met Judy Bloom recently. Mm. And it was like, it was like meeting Mick Jagger. It was like the (laughs) the coolest thing ever. She has this bookstore in Key West and I was down there and we met and, and she was a fan of mine, which was like, oh my God, I've done something right in my life. But when I was a little kid and I read Judy Bloom for the first time, it was, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, which every girl my age read. Um, the feeling that I had was, oh, me too. Like, me too. I didn't know that anyone else felt this way that I feel inside, and Margaret feels this way. So maybe I'm a little less alone in the world, and I'm a little less fragile, and I'm, a, you know, maybe I'm not so crazy after all. And I think that those of us who love to read, at some point or another, we had that feeling whether as a kid or as a young adult or whenever, that that feeling of an author, a writer, a a character reaching out a hand and saying, me too. And so we feel less alone, and that's what's so profoundly instructive. Like, it's not the story or the information that's instructive. It's that feeling of the way that we are so much, all of us, so similar in our deepest feelings and it's the writer's job to articulate those feelings you know perhaps through story you know this is my life so this is the uh set of circumstances i have with which to illuminate these feelings but basically it's just you know here here is my inner world and also reading is so private you're not sitting in a theater with a thousand other people you're one-on-one with this book so it's this very intimate experience between reader and writer in a way that you don't get in any other art form, including, you know, the museum goer doesn't get that. There are other people in the museum. It's just one-on-one, mano a mano, just reader and writer. Yeah, yeah. it's so interesting that you mentioned that. I was recently talking with a friend about, um, about books and how they reach people. And and I was saying, yeah, like book is a book is one of the ways that you sort of go one to many. And he's like, no, 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 that's actually that's not true. Like a a book is a one to one experience. Yes. It is deeply intimate. He says, yes, you know, like millions of people can potentially. 
be exposed to it, but fundamentally the experience of interacting what's in it is this deeply intimate, personal, individualized, you know, sort of thing. Exactly. And Vonnegut um, once said that every writer writes for an audience of one. Mm. And I think about that a lot because people will sometimes ask me whether I think about my audience when I write. And I always tell my students, like, that's, that's, that's catastrophe. Catastrophe lies that way because the minute the writer is thinking about the masses or the many or the audience, um, then self-consciousness sets in, fear sets in, um, a sense of separation in a way sets in. When Vonnegut said that, he was actually referring to his audience of one, which was his sister, who was dead. So it wasn't even an audience of one that would necessarily be picking up the book and reading it. It was just that level of specificity. Mm. So with with the current book, with Hourglass, who was your audience of one? Who are you writing it to? I would say to my husband. Mm. Um, that's a great question. Um, he, I call him M in the book. His name is Michael, but I call him M in the book. And um, he he's a writer as well. And he was reading every page as I was writing. Um, it's kind of our process anyway. He is my first reader. And I tend to share work with him as I'm working on it, always, historically. You know, when I've, whether I'm working on a novel or a memoir or an essay, he tends to hold things closer to the vest and share them with me once, only once he's kind of beat his head against a wall so much that he can't, you know, think anymore. <laughs> Sounds like more my style. Also, <laughs> it may fall along gender lines, I don't it know. May, yeah. But especially with Hourglass, because I was writing about us, you know, when I realized that that was what I was going to be doing, I was so horrified and petrified. It was not a welcome, like, oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to write about my marriage. Yay. It was absolutely petrifying because I was writing about a relationship that I intended to stay in, one that I had no interest in betraying, but one that I wanted to find a way to write about truthfully. How do you write about a relationship truthfully without betraying it, without betraying the person you know, with whom you're in the relationship with. And so in, in, in his sharing, you know, the, in, in his listening to the work every day, um, there was this almost kind of sacred quality to that. And if at any point he had said to me, I don't want you to do this, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, I, I've thought about that a lot since I finished, actually when I finished. And... I gave him the whole manuscript to read, and it was the first time he was going to be reading the whole manuscript. And I was away for the weekend teaching, and he called me, or maybe he texted me. Uh, he texted me, and I, I believe that what he said is, uh, this is fucking brilliant, I believe was his phrase. And that night, I couldn't sleep. I, I did not sleep for one single solitary second, because I thought, now this book is going to go out into the world. Um, I hadn't sold it yet. It's a book that I wrote without selling it. Mm. Not typical for me. I didn't want to sell it until I finished it. And and then the, the next thought that I had was, well, it's going to go out in the world, and then I'm not going to be able to control it anymore. And he feels okay about it now, but what if he doesn't feel okay about it in, in a couple of years? What if people don't read it in the way that I intend it? What if... What if people say mean things about us or mean things about him? I just felt so staggeringly vulnerable for him, not for me. As a memoirist, 
I have written about myself, you know, since I could hold a pen, pretty much. And people always ask me if I feel exposed to my, my work. I've never felt exposed. I don't feel like people know me because I've written these books. I feel like these books are um, crafted works in which I've chosen exactly what to leave in and what to leave out. And, um, but, and I've written about my parents, and I've written about old lovers, boyfriends. I've, I've written about people over the years, but the two people that have been quite sacred to me have been my son and my husband. I've written about my son, but always very careful to... Uh, the question that I would always ask myself is, is it possible that he will be 30 years old someday and say to me, I wish you hadn't written this? And that was, to me, like my, my own personal litmus test. And I don't think I've written anything that he will say that about when he's 30, although I could be wrong. Um, it's weird to be the child of a writer. It's just weird. Um, but my husband, even in my memoir, Devotion, people said to me, where's your husband in this book? And he wasn't. He really wasn't in Devotion almost at all. And the reason why he wasn't is because he had nothing to do with my spiritual journey. He's an atheist. I was on a spiritual journey. He went along for the ride, but it wasn't about our, wasn't about our marriage. And so I had never come up against, oh, this is, this is now something where I'm going to be writing about him. He recently told me that he knew from the moment that he met me that someday I would write a book about him. <laughs> so he knew that, but I didn't. He was just waiting it out. <laughs> Yeah, I, it is so interesting because reading it, um, that's one of the thoughts that, that went through my head was what was going on between you as you were writing it. And you share some of that in the book. And then how was he feeling about it along the way? And you actually share at one point in the book that you were showing him some pages and his, I forget exactly the line, but he's basically like, you need to actually be meaner to me or harsher. Harder on me, yeah. We, yeah. Were, we were actually in the Denver airport and we were each about to get on planes going in different directions. And I was feeling not happy about that. There were, you know, storms and wind and closed runways, and I was not not so happy about getting on two different planes. And we were talking about the book. I actually, this isn't in the book, but I emailed him a copy of my manuscript so that if my plane went down, <laughs> it would still exist. So that's when I really knew I was committed to the book. Um, but we were walking around the Denver airport, and he said to me, you're doing really good work. And I was surprised that he said that because he's very hard on me and doesn't tend to, compliments don't come, you know, sort of flowing from his lips. And uh, and he said, I have only one note. And I kind of braced myself because I thought the note is going to be something about us, something he's uncomfortable with, you know, what, what. And he said, I'm an okay guy, but you're not being nearly hard enough on me. And And I knew he was right. And I also knew at that moment that that was going to go straight into the book. Like, it, it was almost a dividing line in the book between um, it, a moment where the ante got upped, you know, a little bit, where yeah. there was a little bit more of a sense of, he gave me permission. Um, he basically said, you know, if you're going to do this, do it. If you're going to um, reveal what it is to be in our, at that point, 18-year marriage, if you're going to... Uh, you know, try to write something that that's honest and true about everything, about the disappointment, about the risk-taking, about the fear, 
as well as about the beauty and about the love and about the commitment and um, then then go for it. There was a moment where I was reading him a scene that I remember being very nervous about reading him, and we were actually in the car going somewhere. He was driving, and I read it to him in the passenger seat. And there was this pause, and he said, did you think that was going to upset me? And I said, well, I didn't know. And he paused again, and he said, but it's true. And so that that was something that was, very, I think, very genuine coming for him from him was... Um, if I'd written something that he felt wasn't true, that wouldn't have been okay. But writing something that was about the truth of us felt like more than fair game. It felt like, yes, that's what this endeavor is. That's what you're endeavoring to do. Mm. Do, you, do you have any sense for how much of that you think may have come from uh, um, his background um, in sort of like super high-stakes journalism? I think he's pretty comfortable with with stakes being high. I think uh. he's more bristlingly alive when things are very intense around him. Um, so, yeah, maybe in part it has something to do with that, with um, whenever he's been in, in an environment, you know, as a filmmaker, when he was making his first film and the stakes were incredibly high and every day counted if there had been a snowstorm. Well, it wouldn't have been a snowstorm. It was shot in North Carolina. But if there had been a monsoon or if one of the actors had gotten sick or if anything like that had happened, the whole thing would have fallen apart. Like that level of you're, you're counting on the goodness of the universe to have everything be to just that that's not going to happen. And, um, or, or, or perhaps another way of putting it would be, you know, I, he's talked a lot about being a foreign correspondent um, and the way that when one of them would either a photojournalist or a journalist would be killed in Somalia or in um, any of the places where he found himself, the other journalists at the hotel that night would gather around and pretty much say to each other, well, that couldn't have been me because, you know, I wouldn't have gone out after curfew or that wouldn't have been me because everyone knows you don't go down that street or, you know, that that couldn't have happened. There's always this reason, like, that's not going to happen to me because. Um, and so that kind of combined with a sense of, kind of a sixth sense for um, where where it's where it's safe to go, where's the calculated risk, all of that kind of stuff is kind of what makes him up. I remember when um, when he was shooting his last movie, there was a scene in it that takes place in Brooklyn in a cafe, and there are um, the main character is a writer, and he walks into the cafe, and from his point of view, he feels like a loser. He's writing a first novel. His girlfriend has left him. And from his point of view, the cafe is filled with writers writing the great American mm -hmm. novel. And the gag was that he, Michael actually um, cast 45 of our friends who are all really great writers <laughs> <laughs> to be in this cafe. And so it was Jennifer Egan and, um, you know, Nick Flynn and Michael Cunningham and Kurt Anderson and, you know, just all of these amazing writers in this cafe. And Philip Gurevich was one of the writers, and Philip is, was a foreign correspondent. He was in Africa a lot with Michael. They knew each other from there. And he wrote a beautiful book about Rwanda. And I went up to Philip at one point and said, 
this is like Michael's, like a different version of a war for Michael. And I thought Philip would knew what I meant. And he just looked at me like, yeah, you know, sweetheart, this is not Rwanda. This is not <laughs> Somalia. This is a Brooklyn cafe. But that feeling of like being immersed or, you know, enveloped in a world um, is something that he's very comfortable with those, those high stakes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Yeah, I mean, I think if he, if my husband were an attorney or a doctor or an accountant or a teacher or I think most, many, many spouses would not have been comfortable with even the idea of this endeavor yeah well it's like you're you're both in the business of truth telling the way that you write the way that he films it's not you know it's it's not made up stuff um although you know, you're a novelist as well um but even even then there's like i think a lot of truth telling in the way that you write one of the threads that um sort of appears in the conversation as you write is sort of building on this conversation around his work um, in the early days and, you know, in some of the worst parts of the world as a correspondent on the ground and how that seemed the way that you share it to really be something that lit him up. And as you navigate your relationship with him, as you sort of 
move, you know, and settle into the city and and get married and have a child and then move out to the, you know, like to the country. And there's a lot of questioning that happens about not just how you're sort of navigating that, but how that sort of like increasingly steps into domesticity um, affect you and your relationship with him. And also it seems like questioning about whether you, quote, did that to him. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was one of the more... Um, illuminating parts of writing Hourglass for me because it's not something that I think either of us ever looked back and thought very much about. Um, The question of when we met, he was a war correspondent. He had just gotten off a plane from Africa the night before. He had been ambushed on his way to the airport. He you know, he had nine lives. It was, it was, it, it, ha- it happened again and again and again. And we met at a party in New York in the most, you know, sort of almost banal literary circumstances of just a, a party of a bunch of writers um, uh, off of Gramercy Park. And um, we pretty much fell in love, uh, you know, at first sight and very quickly were never apart again. And he never went back to Africa. And it's not something that we ever discussed. We didn't have a sit-down conversation at the beginning of our relationship of, you know, his saying, um, I may want to go back to Africa someday. How would you feel about that? Would you ever consider living in Nairobi if I were going to be made the bureau chief or any kind of, um, uh, you know, if do we want to have children if we were going to have children? We didn't, we were not, we did not have those kinds of um practical, uh, information-based conversations with each other. We just kind of fell in love and embarked on this life together. Seven months later, we were married. Another year and a half after that, we were parents. And in the interim, things would come up and people would invite him to come do things like be dropped into the Congo. But the reckoning that really happened was... In my thinking, because he, you know, things happened very sort of naturally. He got a job for a year at New York Magazine as a contributing editor. He absolutely hated it. He hated every minute of it. He was going from having reported on wars to reporting on things like there was a cover story that he was writing about, about taxis and taxi drivers. And what he did was try to report it the way that he would have reported any story, which is he was getting up at four o'clock in the morning and going down to the diners on, you know, Lower Ninth Avenue where the Ethiopian cab drivers were hanging out and trying to find out really about their lives. But the then editor of New York Magazine was like, no, 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 we don't, we don't care about that. That's, we, we, you know, the consumer of New York Magazine is what we're interested in. And we we care about why it's so uncomfortable in the back of taxis or, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And so it was awful for him. And then he very, again, organically and naturally transitioned into becoming a screenwriter because a couple of things fell into his lap. A book that he wrote was optioned, improbably, a book about foreign policy, a kind of wonky book, got optioned. And next thing he knew, he was writing scripts for HBO. But that is a very hard life, the the life of being a Hollywood screenwriter. And it it makes being a memoirist and a novelist look like, you know, a walk on the beach. And... So it's been full of ups and downs. It's been full of, you know, fits and starts for him. And so one of the things that I felt like I really, really needed to think about was what would, what would his life have been if he hadn't left Africa? 
I mean, he would say he probably would be dead um, and that he's never regretted not going back. But it's like a door is there. And every time, and I write about this in the book, every time anybody ever asks us our origin story that every couple gets asked, you know, how did you meet? Um, they always say, do you miss it? Do you miss Africa? They always ask Michael that question. And and his response is always pretty much, yeah, I missed it. I miss it. But I met Danny and I never looked back. So the whole question, too, in a long relationship about regret or paths not taken or, you know, if I hadn't gone to the party that night if or if, or I mean, he almost didn't walk into that party that night and I almost didn't walk into that party that night. Everything changes. You change one thing and everything changes. Yeah, it's, um, I think we always think if I could just rewrite one little piece of yeah, the story, like it would be perfect. It doesn't but work that way. It doesn't. Yeah, like, I, and there's yeah. such wisdom in that too, in really understanding that. You don't get to say, um, I would like to change this one. Like, for example, sometimes I really miss living in New York. Um, if we still had lived in New York, my son um, would not because of particular things about his childhood and kind of help that he needed when he was a little kid and stuff like that, he wouldn't be the kid he is today. He ended up going to a school in the country that was, I could have searched the world over and never found a more perfect school than this little Montessori school that he went to that really changed his life and has made him this kind of the fantastic 17-year-old that he is now. So it's like, I can't say, I wish I still lived in New York because if I still lived in New York, then I would have had like a completely different kid. It just doesn't work that way. I love That's how. why regret is so unskillful, you know, <laughs> to use the Buddhist term. Yeah, true. I, I love how almost like there's something about the universe where almost any time the conversation turns to New York, it, um, we hear sirens. In the That's background. funny. <laughs> it's like we're in a soundproof studio. The one thing they can get through is sirens and it always does it at the perfect moment in time. You brought up your son a couple of times now. Two big questions just started weighing, not weighing, but just dancing as you wrote about him and as you speak about him. Um, and you brought up one of them, which is, you know, when he turns 30, will he look back at this and say, huh, I, I wish that wasn't out there? Because that's something I think about a lot, not just when I write, but in, when I create media. You know, we're both on social media and we're both mo public, whether we want to or not, sort of part of the path these days, public in ways that we would, you know, probably to a certain extent prefer not to be. So it's always interesting to me to see sort of how a writer chooses to speak about family and then to speak about a child in the moment. And so I'm, I'm curious, I know you said you were showing the manuscript to uh, your husband as it was going along. What about the kid? Yeah, the kid. Um, I didn't show in the manuscript as I was as I was writing it. I did give him one of the very first galleys um, to read, uh, which he read about half of, really loved, and then promptly lost, <laughs> and has not asked me to. He did not ask me to replace it. Classic until, for a Well, you know kid. what? Actually, and that's and and it's really in in a way kind of the perfect uh, response because it's sort of like you know it's not really his world or his life. It's he. He cares, and he um, he was very, uh, very lovely and loving and admiring of it. He's in the book, not a huge amount as himself today. Like there's there's only really one or two little kind of recurring motifs in the book where he 
uh, where he's in it, and I and I knew he wouldn't mind the way that he is. There's nothing that's um, revealing or embarrassing or anything like that, which is I think em- embarrassing or revealing are both the the benchmarks for me. Is there some way in which um, there's something that he wouldn't want out there? I thought about this a lot when I was writing my memoir, Devotion, because my son was sick as a baby, and that is his story. Um, but it also happened to me as his mother. And so, but Annie's completely a thousand percent fine. So I had to really think, is it okay to tell this story? Um, is it okay for me to tell the story of what it was to be his mother? Because that includes the facts of his history. And, you know, time will tell. Um, I think it's fine. Um, but it's always... Uh, you know, one never really knows how, how you know, in the fullness of time, anybody is going to feel about having been written about. I, I can tell you right now that he's extremely proud at 17, you know, that he's, he's proud of his parents. He, he's getting a group of his friends at school together to come to one of my readings. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, that's great. He tells his teachers about his parents who are writers. But, but at the same time... Um, I am increasingly increasingly respectful of the fact that it is complicated to be related to a writer. And, you know, he's related to two of them. And, you know, I'll see sometimes someone meet him, say a fan of mine or something, meet him. He's, you know, at a runs into me or recognizes me when I'm with him. And one of the things people will often say to uh, to my son when they've read Devotion is, Oh my God, you're so big. (laughs) Because the thing that memoir does, and people don't talk about this a lot, but having written a number of memoirs, I think I really uh, have come to understand it, is it pins the moment in time. It doesn't tell the story for all time. This is not the story of my marriage for all time. This is my story of my, this is the story of my marriage as I understand it in the year 2017, at the age of 54, having been married for 20 years. This is what I understand about being a mother. My son is 17. This is what I understand about having both of my parents be gone X number of years. That that kind of, you know, if I were to, like my friend Sylvia Borstein read an early copy of Hourglass and, and had a really beautiful response to it. But I had been so nervous about her response to it because she's been married 60 years. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I'm a pipsqueak marriage-wise when it comes to people who have been married 50, 60 years. What do I know about that? The answer is nothing. I know nothing about that. I know about this right now. So could I write another book, you know, 15 years from now that would be quite different from this one? Yeah. You know, so 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 that idea of that little boy in devotion, got pinned in time as, you know, the seven-year-old that he was in that book. And, you know, now he's this strapping guy, and people are like, oh, you look so, you're so, you're so big. So it's a strange reality for him. It's almost like being in some sort of hall of mirrors where he means something different to people than who he is. And that's got to be a little funky. Uh, so I have a lot of respect for that. Just, you know, ask, I check in with him once in a while about that. Like, so how, how was that for you? And he just laughs. Yeah, no, I, it is so interesting. I mean, I mean, I think one of the things that was going through my head also is there's there's the way that it lands um, when you write directly about him, but there's also the way that it lands when you write about 
uh, you and your husband when you write about um, this is funny this popped into my head sort of like how it it's, it's funny how I read this stuff like I was wondering how it would land with him when you would weave through narratives about how sometimes brutally hard the profession is on you on your marriage on your finances in a very raw very transparent and truthful way um yeah i mean that and, you know i was like wow this is this is this is all out there um for you guys and for him yes i think that that was probably the scariest thing for me because you know, two things that people are never honest about, their marriages and money. Right. right. And, uh, you know, I guess, you know, creative risk taker that I guess I am. I um, I couldn't write about my marriage without writing about um, what it is to be two artists together. And, and also, I guess I, I have this feeling that I have increasingly as I get older, but that I've always had, that when... Um, when I feel that I'm being that I'm being misunderstood, or that there are assumptions that are being made about me or about my life that are that are incorrect, I somehow want to. I somehow feel like it's almost my job to correct them, in the sense that, you know, I've always been a mythbuster about writing. I am a quote-unquote best-selling writer. I this is my ninth book. I have you know, a career that a lot of people think is really charmed. It is in many ways really charmed. Does that make it easy? Does that mean, you know, that, you know, sometimes I'll be at a reading, uh, giving a reading, and, you know, there'll be a line of people to buy books, and there are invariably people online to buy books where someone will say, you know, I'm, I took your book out of the library, and then I lent it to my sister, and she gave it to her cousin, and they're telling me this like it's good news, right? And, Michael and I have talked about that a lot of times. And I was like, what are people thinking? And Michael has said to me, they think writers are rich, which is hilarious. But it's really true. There is, you know, we live in a really pretty house. We drive decent cars. Our son has gone to private school. Um, And so there's this way in which people just think that there's like a level of comfort and that there's no insecurity and that there's no risk. Um, And... Uh, that's been something that's come up with people reading the book early. People even who know me pretty well saying, I didn't know this. I thought I thought everything was, you know, I thought there was like, you know, some big cushion somewhere. There isn't. And, you know, just the other day, Michael turned to me. He, he's actually in the process of seemingly to being about to make a second movie. It's all come together for the moment. And... Uh, you know, and it's a very high stakes game. It's famous actors and, you know, a big budget and all that kind of, not big, but indie big. And he said to me, I, I want you to know that there is no part of me that wishes that I was working in a regular job and waiting for my bonus at the end of the year. Like, I am more alive right now than I am at any other time when all of this is going on and it's all firing, you know, it's all firing on all cylinders all the time. And, you know, that gave me such a measure of relief that he's doing what he has no regrets about what he's doing. He's doing what he really wants to be doing. And if all we have is the present, you know, if there's a, there's a moment in, in Hourglass where 
Uh, I'm listening to uh, an ad on the radio, and it's for a financial planning a fa- financial planning firm, and um, and they're talking about um, about the future and um, um, I'm not going to remember the exact phrase, but uncertainty is inevitable. Um, or, the, but I was thinking about just the whole idea that there is, you know, there, there's Sylvia Borstein said this great thing to me that she, I quote in the book without naming her, um, but she said, you know, the future even an hour from now is an actu- actuarial guess. So if the future is an actuarial guess, if even five minutes from now, we don't know what's going to happen, and. The idea of being completely engaged and immersed in doing what you love, even if what you're doing is a bit of a high wire act. Every couple that I know who who are both in creative fields grapples with this in one way or another. Um, and I really wanted to try to write about that. I mean, I um, write about other literary couples in the book, you know, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, or, you know, Donald Hall and Jane Kenyon, um, uh, Virginia and Leonard Wolf, you know, so, you know, some of these um, were did not end well, um, but they were um, people trying to kind of keep their world afloat together as partners together. And I wanted to try to write about the beauty of that and the uncertainty of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it it landed. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, because there is, um, I work with my wife. Um, I did not know that. We yeah, the the last uh, four or five years, I guess, you know, we're quote in business together, and you know, I'm solitary. I'm a writer, and you know, like a creator on that side. But we also have a company that we're building, like a media company, an education company. But we're entrepreneurs, you know, at yeah. the same time. So we are in the business of constantly creating and recreating from nothing, and we're charged with, even when we feel like things are going great and we're comfortable breaking what we're doing because yes. there's no sideways. Right. And I think that if there's a creative bone in your body, that's what you have to do. Right. And it's terrifying, especially, right. and I'm glad that, that you wrote about this and I'm glad we're talking about it because I think when we're younger, everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then you get to a certain part of your life and people are like, you're still doing that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the eyebrows get raised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet, what is there supposed to be if you're a creative person? A, a moment where you change course and become something else or you know you you, there's one of my favorite cartoons from the new yorker years and years ago there's there's a split screen and there's a a man who's standing there and he's looking out the window and his desk is in the background and he's looking out the window with his arms crossed and he has glasses on and underneath it says writer's block temporary and then on the other side of the screen same guy same stance same glasses same crossed arms but he's standing in front of a fish store that bears his name, and it says "Writer's Block Permanent," <laughs> and I just love that so much. You know, but but the thing is, I'm guessing that you and your wife never uh, don't have uh, stuff to talk about, right? Like you're you're in it all the time in this kind of um, in this stream together. That's like on the one hand, all of your eggs are in the same basket; on the other hand, all your eggs are in the same basket, and it's 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 a very um, it's a very beautiful way to go through life. It's, you know, it's not without its complexity, though. And that's what I really, that's what I wanted to, to look at, you know, the idea of, you know, being, being partners. I mean, Michael and I do different projects, we rarely do a project together. And in fact, there's been conversation about 
possibly, you know, Hourglass the movie, and everyone is in agreement that Michael shouldn't make it. <laughs> you know, because that's not that's that's not wise. It's not wise to be that much in the same the same thing, either creatively or financially or professionally. And and so we each have our own projects, but at the same time we're constantly thinking, talking, you know, I'm talking to him about casting ideas for his movie. He's talking to me about and and you you know you mentioned the word entrepreneur i don't think this is going to be a fairly bold thing i think to say but i don't think that it's possible to be a writer or an artist working today who is ambitious and by ambitious i mean both creatively ambitious and ambitious in terms of wanting to have an audience who can afford to not be an entrepreneur. I completely agree. And I and I actually have learned to enjoy it. I'm pretty much an introvert. My favorite way of spending my time is pretty much alone in a room, uh, for which the internet is actually a very useful mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, wonderful way of being able to get out there. But to really think, what's going to make this work? How can I reach people with this book, how can I be sure that the people who are going to respond to this are going to know about it and find it? What is my, and you know, and this is something, a number of years ago, even when I wrote Still Writing, I made some joke about the word um, platform, you know, and like the, you know, platform, I only like the word platform if it's on the sole of a very cool shoe Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But you know what, it's, life continues to evolve. This life of ours with all of its attendant noise and all of its, um, you know, just the, the, the endlessness of it. You just wrote about this really beautifully the other day. Uh, you know, all of just like what, at what point do we, at what point is it consuming us and at what point are mm-hmm. we consuming it? But really finding that place and not being ashamed or embarrassed of, about saying, yes, I am trying is it is like is it is are like do the cool kids not try? Um, I want to be sure that that I'm you know that that this work that I've bled over and has is has like takes has taken from me everything that I have to the point where it's like at the end you know I was like the boxer in the ring with the you know with the with the with the you know referee like counting down well then if I've gone through that in order to be able to write this book then I want people to be able to find it and that takes that kind of creative spirit a different kind of creative spirit than it takes to do the writing of it yeah I I, I completely agree and my sense is that and I'm much newer to the world of writing than you are but in my experience, which you know, I've been in it since 2008, let's call it, that to want to be a writer without also being even reluctantly raising your hand to say, I will also do the work to on some level become an enterprise. <laughs> I don't see how, unless you're just planning on being that miraculous soul who writes something that just taps into the zeitgeist in the most astonishing way at the right moment in time and everything happens magically and in, which there, can happen and on rare once, occasion. once or twice in a generation that happens right but other than that you know <laughs> we there's a certain i think responsibility that we need to own you know i think on the one hand it's a scary time 
for for some writers and create an artist of almost any field. And on the other hand, for those who are willing to step into that place and say, okay, that I now have more ability to actually build direct, sustained relationships with those I seek to, you know, like share my art with. If, if I actually go out and do it, like that opportunity creates possibility for artists of, in any medium that I think are astonishing. If you, but you've got to be willing to do the work. Do the work, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Do the work, and also I think there's another layer to it, which is own who and what you are mm. in all of its idiosyncrasy. Take me more there. Okay, so, you know, I used to, even up to a few years ago, I used to, uh, you know, once in a while think, but wait a minute, I'm sort of unclassifiable. Who are my role models? I mean, on the one hand, I am decidedly a literary writer. On the other hand, I was on Oprah. I teach academically, but I teach in yoga centers. And I, when I teach, I um, often lead my students in meditation now, um, which is not an academically, pedagogically recognized, although uh, Increasingly. I, think, I think it should be. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe heading there. But um, I, I have written books that have helped people that aren't self-help but then get embraced by the self-help community. Um, so, And then I started teaching in this much bigger sort of um, leading retreats kind of way. Uh, and in the beginning, and I was kind of being dragged along a little bit at the beginning. In the beginning, I was just being dragged along by the energy of it and the momentum and the invitations. But there was part of me that was holding back. And there was part of me that was feeling like, but wait a minute, I'm a literary writer. Um, you know, who, who else has done this? Um, I need to find someone else who has done this so that I can figure out how she did it, and then I'll do it that way. And then in the last couple of years, something really shifted where I thought, you know what? This particular aspect of me in terms of the way all of this has happened in my creative life and my work life is unclassifiable. And I need to be the person beating my way through the brush and saying, this is... You know, it's okay to be um, a, you know, to, to have a fairly significant following on social media and be someone who has written a very delicate literary memoir. My books can help people without them being, you know, meant to be or, or my approaching them as self-help. Um, I can teach in this way because I'm teaching what I have learned to do for myself and what works for me. And so I'm developing my own pedagogical um, philosophy. Um, and so all of that, like all of that sort of rolled up into a feeling, you know, of just like, yeah, it's, it's not only is it uh, fine, but I think it's necessary. Like people ask me all the time about finding their voice, like what is, um, somebody just the other day said to me, what would be the one piece of advice you would give a writer starting out? And um, I surprised myself which, with my answer, which was um, embrace, embrace your own idiosyncrasy. You know, understand that that's, that's what you have going for you, not what you have going against you. Yeah. I'm still working on that. <laughs> we all As I think are. we all are. Yeah. yeah. I wonder also if part of it is I'm 51, so we're you know, close to the same age. Um, 
I, th- I think there's a seasonality also to it where you get to a point where you're just kind of like, you know what, take me or leave me. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've got to kind of be me. The thing that I'm still not comfortable with is I still, I filter a huge amount. Like what people see of me publicly is me, but it's not the whole me. Um, it's nowhere close to the whole me. Um, and it's not, and it's not nowhere close to the whole idiosyncrasious me either. <laughs> well, is it ever though? Yeah. You know, because I think it's it always involves crafting. No. Um because it is a public performance. It's um I often will say to my students you are not publishing your diary, you know, and you know, and you're not reading my diary. Um these are not it is not like a let it all hang out. You know, Annie Dillard has this great line where she says, you may not let it rip. I love that. It's like, no, it's about sitting down and chiseling and crafting and choosing and and finding the puzzle pieces that belong together and creating out of all that something that is resonant. I think it only becomes resonant when it's being crafted and created that way. Um, but that's not at odds with embracing your idiosyncrasy. It's just yeah. sort of saying like, um, Dolly Parton has this great saying that you may have heard, which is um, something to the effect of figure out who you are and then do do it on purpose. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and and at the same time, I think there's a really big risk of somebody reading something like Hourglass you know, like, and saying, well, this is almost like the stream of consciousness live journaling of her processing this in real time because – it feels like that. It feels like we're in your head as you process and move through these moments. And, and you write in a in present tense very often, which makes you feel like I'm looking over your shoulder the mm-hmm. whole moment. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear you say, yes, it's my truth. And it, this is also, there. It, it's a, it's a, it is an edited, selected, refined performance to a certain extent. Oh, completely. Yeah. Uh, there, was, there was nothing stream of consciousness about the writing of Hourglass. It was... Um, in fact, as I was writing it, my process was that I had a huge pile of index cards all the time with thoughts I had about what might belong in the book mm. and trying to sort out what gave the book the shape that I wanted. Ultimately, it wasn't about a chronology or a narrative or what's going to happen next, but it absolutely, in order to, for it to do what I hoped it would do, it needed to have a shape. And so, you know, you asked earlier about the question of um, regret and, you know, over over a long marriage beginning, you know, like the the whole question about Africa and whether whether Michael ever would have, you know, wanted to return and that becoming something that I, I in a way, shaped that in the book to, I mean, to have it have an arc over the course of the book um, not just have it be sort of one section of the book, where there's a motif that runs through it where very early on, M uh, says to me, I'll take care of it. And it's about something. It's like our roof leaking or the woodpecker pecking away at the side of our house. I'll take care of it. And the next sentence is um, an important part of our marriage, something I've always loved and longed to believe. And then at a certain point, I'll take care of it became this refrain in the book. And then there was this great moment, a great moment for me as a writer, where I understood something about the shape of the book, where I realized, oh, 
because there was a passage much later in the book where I wrote, I'll take care of it. You know, I was looking at M sleeping and worrying and thinking about the future, and and I silently think to myself, I'll take care of it. And one of the most beautiful things that anybody has said to me so far about the book was from Sylvia Borstein after she read it, she of the 60-year marriage, and she said, but that's it in marriage over the time. Over time, you know, the idea of one of you taking care of it is like a hot potato that you keep on tossing from one to the other and back again over the course of a lifetime. And it's only if it gets dropped that it's a problem, or if you're both holding hot potatoes at the same moment that it's challenging. But in a in a marriage that works, I think there's always this sense of fluidity of who's stronger right now, who's who has more energy right now, who's more able to bear this burden right now, who's the one who's going to say, let's take the day off and play hooky and go to MoMA right now, who's who's the one to say, you know what, you really, really need a massage, I'm going to book you an appointment, like whatever it is, two people doing that together, and um, and that's when I understood the shape of the book, that that was what was going to contain it in a way, because I did upend time in it, but it was very, very deliberate. And I think one of the things that readers often, when they read something that reads as effortless, this is in all genres, they believe that it was effortless. And excellent for them to believe that. But work that appears to be effortless is the work that has been like slaved over so that so that there's never a moment where the reader is like stubbing his toe and thinking like, "Ouch, that doesn't that doesn't feel right or that doesn't make sense." Yeah, I, I so resonates with me. Um, one of my aspirations as a writer is to reach a level of craft where people don't see the craft anymore. Exactly, it just vanishes. It vanishes. It's, there's just a sense of such ease in the experience that the craft vanishes. That's and right. That's where I think you've really started to. to operate on a different level. Oh, I love hearing <laughs> that. And, you know, the another thing that I was trying to do was to show the seams, which I think if you reach a level of craft where you're not afraid of showing the seams, of saying, like, this is how this thing is made. Mm. Like the moment where M turns to me and says, you're not being hard enough on me. Or there are a couple of places in the book that I actually refer to the fact that I am writing a book. Um, because... It's also a book about being a writer, being a writer who's traveling and teaching and writing and struggling and, you know, doing different kinds of writing jobs and all of that kind of stuff. And I wanted to be able to actually show the making of it in some way and have the making of it be part of the, hopefully part of the artfulness of it. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that. So it feels like a good time for us to come full circle. So I asked you this chunk of years ago, but as we've talked about, these are snapshots. So the name of this is Good Life Project. So as we sit here today, if I offer that phrase, that term, to live a good life, what comes up? Mm. I would say so much of what we've been talking about in this conversation, in a way, to live in the present, to live with a sense of personal authenticity, a sense of one's own uh, realness. You know, I'm thinking of the Velveteen Rabbit. I think maybe as we get older, a little bit of that feeling of it's really okay to be this real and to 
reveal one's realness or I'll speak in the first person to reveal, you know, my realness or my vulnerability or my rawness or my openness does not expose me and make me vulnerable in a, in a, um, in a scary, unsafe way. I think it, it makes me feel stronger because I'm not, I'm not hiding behind a whole lot of layers of artifice or subterfuge or masks um, that I'm either aware of or I think even, um, you know, subconsciously aware of. I mean, I really, it's so much about just taking off the masks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If the stories and ideas in any way moved you, I would so appreciate if you would take just a few extra seconds for two quick things. One, if it's touched you in some way, if there's some idea or moment in the story or in the conversation that you really feel like you would share with somebody else, that it would make a difference in somebody else's life, take a moment and whatever app you're using, Just share this episode with somebody who you think it'll make a difference for. Email it if that's the easiest thing, whatever is easiest for you. And then, of course, if you're compelled, subscribe so that you can stay a part of this continuing experience. My greatest hope with this podcast is not just to produce moments um, and share stories and ideas that impact one person listening, but to let it create a conversation, to let it serve as a catalyst for the elevation of all of us together collectively because that's how we rise when stories and ideas become conversations that lead to action that's when real change happens and i would love to invite you to participate on that level thank you so much as always for your intention for your attention for your heart and um i wish you only the best i'm jonathan fields signing off for good life project Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.